The following is a message by Dr. Howell Jones of Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at westcal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. We bow in thy presence, O Lord our God. Thou art on high, we upon the earth. Yet thou dost humble thyself to look further than heaven itself to behold us and all thy people. And not one of them has been, nor, one, nor will one ever be, hidden from thee. Thine eye is upon each. And thou hast called us by name, and we are joined to thy Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and in him to life, life everlasting, life eternal. We thank thee then that we dwell beneath the shadow of the throne to who, of the one to whom all authority in heaven and earth has been given. And we rejoice in him together this morning and in the assurance that thou hast given us that his kingdom will know no end. We therefore pray for our brothers and sisters who suffer adversity and difficulty in his cause and service. And while not strangers to that in measure ourselves, we know that there are those uh, who are called upon to endure far greater sufferings than we. We pray that thy grace might be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity and grant them and us uh, to know that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us and therefore to rejoice that nothing can separate us from his love. Help us to bear a worthy testimony to his name even in trying times and we Lift up our minds and hearts to thee together this morning to thank thee that thou wilt never leave us nor forsake us. Help us then while passing through this wilderness of a world on our way to our heavenly home to do so as those who know that we are held in thy favor through Christ's righteousness and who have thy spirit within our hearts for his sake. Enable us to serve him boldly and obediently. Receive our thanks, sustain us by thy grace, pardon our sins, and grant thy blessing for his sake. Amen. Be seated, please. You turn with me to the book of the prophet Isaiah. I want to read uh, the first six verses of chapter 28 this morning. Isaiah chapter 28 verses 1 through 6. Let us hear the word of God. Ah, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim, and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich, valley of those overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord has one who is mighty and strong, like a storm of hail, a destroying tempest, like a storm of mighty overflowing waters, he casts down to the earth with his hand. The proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim 
will be trodden underfoot, and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley, will be like a first ripe fig before the summer. When someone sees it, he swallows it as soon as it is in his hand. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people. The spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment and strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. May the Lord bless to us his word. Uh, we still are occupied with this 24th chapter of the book of the prophet Isaiah, whose theme, as you recall, is the end of the world on account of the coming of Jehovah to judge and save his people. And by that, of course, we are to understand the personal return of the Lord Jesus Christ at the crack of doom and the dawn of glory. A response to this chapter, therefore, should be generated within us by its truth. And to trivialize it or formalize it is but to indicate a state of spiritual insensitivity. It isn't sufficient as a response to this subject to reject the left-behind industry with all its works. We must respond personally to this, individually and also corporately. And it is to Isaiah's words in verses 14 to 16 that we turn for a model response which we can follow. Now, in these verses 14, 15, and 16, we see that Isaiah responds in a twofold way by way of praise and lament. Those are very different notes. But there's no discord between them, no cacophony. Just as the major and minor keys in music complement each other, so here, praise and lament do exactly the same. And these twin notes are not only part and parcel of orthodoxy, but also of piety as well. They recur, don't they, in the book of Psalms, on the part of the church on earth. Merely to praise is to react as if there were no more sin as if the world, the flesh, and the devil had gone by, never to return. They will, but they haven't gone yet. And also, merely to lament is to give the impression that there's no gospel, no righteousness before God, no grace from him through the merit of the Messiah the Lord Jesus Christ. And so these twin themes are not merely Old Testament themes, but New Covenant themes too. 
And even though their proportion may alter somewhat, when we pass from the old to the new, they continue until the Lord Jesus Christ returns again. A new heavens and a new earth result at his word in which righteousness dwells and into which sin cannot enter. Now we've seen that Isaiah hears a song echoing from east and west and he wants it to continue, he wants it to increase. It's a song about the majesty of the Lord and his gift of beauty to his people, his righteous people. And we understand uh, the word uh, glory to the righteous one with reference to the people of God rather than the Lord himself because the term used for glory there is beauty or splendor. And in Isaiah, that is something which the Lord gives to his people. We read together Isaiah 28, 5, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people. He will beautify them. He will glorify them. And these then are the twin themes of the song that Isaiah gets a snatch of and which he wants to continue and increase. And that's a song that we've heard too, haven't we? In and through the gospel. By the word of God and in the Lord Jesus Christ brought home to us by the Holy Spirit as the deafness in our ears has been removed, we hear that song. And to hear it is to want it never to fall into silence. But it isn't only that that we have here. We have Isaiah's lament too. Because to hear that song brings with it the realization that though we want it to continue, we can't yet sing it as one day we will. And that is the logic of the lament. A lament which is not only characterized by longing, certainly there is that, but also characterized by the fact that the condition and circumstances in which Isaiah finds himself, which he describes here, and which in measure we still know, burdens us, perplexes us, fills us with anguish and concern. How does he describe this lament? Well, he says, But I say, Woe is me, my leanness, my leanness. The traitors have betrayed, 
with betrayal the traitors had betrayed. Now these words, but I said, and woe is me, should remind us of Isaiah's call. Isaiah chapter 6. We find them there. And as you know, in Isaiah chapter 6, he expresses himself this way because he senses acutely, alarmingly, his personal unfitness to stand in the presence of the holy Lord of hosts. And not only that, but also the unfitness of his people to appear before him as well. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Mine eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. But here in Isaiah 24, though he uses the same words, but I said, woe is me, there's a slight difference and a significant one. Because this follows a description of the end of all things. The judgment of God has fallen. And it follows immediately upon a description of the fact that there are nevertheless survivors who sing his praise. And so in saying, but I said, woe is me. In chapter 24, what Isaiah is here referring to is his unfitness and apprehension in view of all that is going to transpire because of the current situation that he and his people are in, which he describes as leanness and which he attributes to treachery. He might even be raising the question as to whether he and they are going to be among those who survive that outpouring of divine wrath. My leanness, my leanness, the traitors have betrayed with treachery. The traitors have betrayed. Let's look at these terms then. The condition that he describes, his leanness, and remember, he's speaking in a corporate way here of himself and certainly the believing remnant. The word that he uses here is a rather difficult word to translate. It has cognates in Isaiah, but we don't exactly find this term anywhere else in the book. Where we do find it, is in connection with a, descript a description of a land devastated, a people plundered, depredation has occurred, impoverishment has resulted. And he uses it of Assyria in Isaiah 10, the great threat in the estimate of the people of Judah, and describes Assyria's splendor as being um, terminated, just like someone who is sick and ailing. And then he refers to Tyre in Isaiah 23, 
in exactly the same way. In verse 9, he says, The Lord of hosts has purposed it to defile all the pompous pride of all glory. There's the term. But in the preceding statement, he describes that glory, that splendor, in this way. Tyre, the one who bestowed crowns, whose merchants were princes, whose traders were the honored of the earth. That's all gone. It's now leanness. Devastation and plunder has taken place. And then, most significantly in Isaiah 28, Ephraim, the northern kingdom, is about to fall as a result of Sennacherib's invasion and Assyria's devastation of the land. Here's the people of God. Not merely Assyria and Tyre, but here's the northern kingdom. They too are going to enter into this terrible situation of decimation and destruction. The loss of all prosperity and influence, decline and loss. And as Isaiah looks at himself in his situation, identifies himself with his people, anticipates the end, this is what he senses. The people of God in decline. My leanness, my leanness. You see, it's just like Daniel. You remember as he is given to see the future up until the coming of the Messiah, his face turns pale and he has no strength left in him. And the end of the world is something that should bring home to us. Not merely its awfulness, but also bring home to us the way in which All that is glorious and significant will fade and fall. He uses the expression, the flower fades. Isaiah 40 uses it here in connection with these peoples. But first and foremost, he's describing Judah in the 8th century. And as you and I look around at the church of the Lord Jesus Christ today, We can't take that sanguine, optimistic view that the clap-happy people take, can we? If we know anything about the judgment of God and the awfulness of sin and the grim reality of covenant breaking, then that should sober us and make us realize that even we ourselves are not what we ought to be if God were to deal with us strictly at this present time. But then he goes on to explain it. And he explains it in this way. Not in terms borrowed, as it were, from the book of Judges. As a result of invasion. But in terms of treachery. In terms of enemies within the camp. We don't have time to go on. But what he's referring to, of course, is this. That there was Babylon beginning to loom on the horizon. And what were the people of God doing? They were doing exactly the same thing as they had done when Assyria loomed on the horizon in the northern kingdom. 
They were going down to Egypt for help. This is what the traitors were doing. They were not trusting in Jehovah of hosts. And isn't this the great cause of the weakness, failure, decline of the visible church time and time again throughout our history? She has not looked to God alone in his character as deliverer and not looked to the great Jesus Christ as the only mediator between God and men. Last prophet, great high priest, king of the whole earth and depended upon him and him entirely for their continuance. That's why he laments as he looks around shouldn't we Lament too. But remember, this lament is fueled by the fact, not merely that things are serious, it's fueled by the fact that they're not going to be like this forever. There's going to be a day of glory. It's on its way, it's coming. He still has a song to sing, but it's muted. We still have a song to sing. And it shouldn't be as muted as Isaiah's was. Why? Well, because the king has come. And he set up a kingdom. And it can't be destroyed. And he will come again. And nothing can stop him. And he's on the way. And then we won't lament anymore. And then we will sing. As never before. And forever. Let us pray. Be pleased, O Lord, to receive our thanks even now. For so great salvation. We rejoice that thou art with us and for us. As thy children, as thy people. And so, who can really be against us if thou art for us? Fill us with joy and peace in believing. Keep us humble. Grant us concern for thy work and people. Yet enable us to trust and sing and hope, looking for the coming of this great day when thou wilt be glorified. Hear us, grant us thy blessing, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.